0: This morning we're continuing in our January series and we come to Acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 32. So if you would turn with me there in your copy of God's word, Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 23. Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy inspired in an errant word beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we might have it this morning read in a language that we can understand. But we ask now that you would help us by your spirit. You would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Give us understanding, O God. Teach us and train us. Correct us. Yes, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. O God, would you make us more like Jesus? Father, I pray for your people, that you would be mightily at work in their hearts. Grant them gospel boldness, I pray. Father, help me that as I preach the gospel, as I teach your word, Lord, that you would grant me boldness as well, that you would protect me from error, and that you would help me in my time of need. I love you, O Lord. You are my rock, and you are my strength. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I have a pastor friend who's from Malawi. And his name is Confex, and Confex shared a story recently on his social media feed about prayer. And the story that he shared told of the early African converts to Christianity, the ones who were earnestly committed and regular in their private devotions. Tradition has it that each one of these converts had a separate spot in the bush or We might think of it out in the woods somewhere, out in the bush, where they would go, and there they would pour out their hearts to God in prayer. And over time, as each one began to go to this place over and over again, the paths to those places become very well worn. And as a result, if any one of those believers began to neglect their time with God, it was soon readily apparent to all the others. So in love, as the body of Christ, they would kindly go to the ones who grew negligent and remind them, brother, the grass grows on your path. The grass grows on your path. This morning, I want us to think about our path. I want to ask you about your path. How is the grass on your path? Is it well-worn, or is the grass growing? Listen, I'm not asking you questions that I haven't already asked myself. And admittedly, there are times when I am not pleased. Perhaps I'm even ashamed of my own path. So brothers and sisters, how is your path? How is your path? We're in the middle of a brief series of sermons that are refocusing us as a body on our mission here at the Granville Chapel. We believe that God has called us to engage the world around us by sharing our lives and sharing the gospel with others, by serving them just as Jesus has served us. And that is indeed a high calling, and it is a calling that requires strength strength far beyond anything we can muster up on our own, strength that is not only supernatural, but strength that is available, available above and beyond measure to all those who would reach out to God and ask him for it. You don't need a special type of education. You don't need the most eloquent of words You don't even have to be a certain age, and it doesn't even matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus. All you need to access this strength is faith, simple faith, simple faith that compels you to walk a well-worn path where you humble yourself before God and do nothing more than ask. Ask and receive. This morning, we are given a wonderful picture of this well-worn path right here in Acts chapter 4. If you think about what's been happening to the early church, you can say that it's an exciting time for believers in Jerusalem. God is at work in mighty ways, and the church is growing exponentially. But with growth in the church, there's also growing resistance To the church. After healing a crippled man and boldly proclaiming the gospel to the crowds who had gathered, the apostles Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were brought before the Jewish religious authorities and they were threatened. But John and Peter were unyielding in their testimony. The response of the leaders sets the stage for our text well. I want us to go back. And look at that together. So lift your eyes up from where we began in chapter 4, verse 23. Go up to verse 13. Go up to verse 13. Now when they, that is the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus in this name so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and when they had further threatened them they left they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. You see, threats have been made. Battle lines have been drawn in the sand. Ultimatums have been given. You can't teach and preach in that name anymore. Peter and John understand what is happening The friends to whom they go to, in verse 23, understand what is happening and all agree on one thing, it's vanity. It is vanity. If you're taking notes, this is the first of our three points this morning, the simple word, vanity. Those who walk the well-worn path of devotion to God find themselves well-prepared For times like this, those who are committed privately to God and their devotion to him are well-suited to join with other believers with like-mindedness to address this turmoil that's come upon the church. I want you to notice how prayer is presented as naturally as breathing here in verses 23 I mean, Peter and John are released, they go to their friends, they give their report, and then how do they respond? What is the response? Look what the text says. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. It's immediacy. When they heard it, they prayed. They didn't take time to process What had happened. They didn't appoint a committee to study whether preaching the gospel is appropriate in this context or not. They didn't entertain the notion that somehow these earthly religious authorities, the same ones, by the way, who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and had put him to death, they didn't for a moment entertain the notion that perhaps they should form some type of gospel coalition with them to find a path forward to work together in a spirit of ecumenicalism. No. They went straight to the Lord in prayer. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. When they heard it, they prayed. They lifted their eyes up to the hill from where their help comes. Because their help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Many of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer, pastor and teacher, and his book, Paths to Power, He said this, and I quote, Church is not an organization, merely an organization, but it's a walking incarnation of spiritual energy. He goes on to say that the church began in power. The church moved in power, and it moved just as long as the Lord gave it power. And then reflecting on the history of the church, he says, but when she no longer has power or had power, She dug in for safety and sought to conserve her gains, but her blessings were like the manna. When they tried to keep it overnight, it bred worms and it stank. He finishes by saying, it is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. The early church pictured here for us refused to dig in for safety. They refused to conserve the gains they had made. They recognized, they accepted their divine commission to take the gospel, as Jesus told them, to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to all Judea, to Samaria, yes, even to the ends of the earth. And they knew that that commission far and above outweighed any earthly opposition that stood against them. They knew that dying to worldly expectations and worldly standards was the path to knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. They knew that the plots of these earthly rulers were nothing more than vanity. And it's made clear in how they pray. For where do they go first in their prayer? To Psalm 2. It's quoted there for you in verses 25 and 26. But to help us see it, we need to look at its whole context. Don't worry, it's not that long. But would you turn with me in your copy of God's word to Psalm chapter 2? All the way back here through David, the psalmist, God is speaking of his Messiah, the anointed one. The coming Christ at this time. For now, we see him as our resurrected, ascended, and reigning Christ. Hear God's word in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These believers are taking refuge in Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, the reigning one. And blessed are they. They knew that it was in vain that the ones who arrested Peter and John forbid them from preaching in Jesus' name. They knew what we sang earlier this morning, those words penned first by Martin Luther and, and sung in that hymn, A Mighty Fortress, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So assemble as they may. Gather together to stand against the Lord and his anointed. It is vanity. Vanity of vanities. It is as the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us. Striving after the wind. Striving after the wind. The church's recognition of this vanity highlights for us a foundational reality that helped them to stand strong as they are. In the face of opposition, for our text makes it clear that these believers knew God's sovereignty. That's our second point this morning, if you're taking notes. First was vanity. Second is sovereignty. Sovereignty. Many years ago, way long ago it feels like, I was discipling a young man whose name was Casey. Casey. Casey and I had been talking theology for a long time and we began to study the book of Romans together and I was helping him wrestle with God's sovereignty over all things if you've studied the book of Romans you know of what I speak Casey was wrestling and he finally one day he came to me when we were meeting and he said I get it now God has made it very plain to me I understand God's sovereignty So I did what I think good teachers should do. I said, well, Casey, you tell me, what does it mean that God is sovereign? He took a bite of his sandwich. He sat back and he could tell he was thinking. And then he looked at me and he goes, all I can say is that it means that God is in absolute control of absolutely everything. Mic drop, right? Nothing more to be said. As far as definitions go, he was right. Now you know where I got my definition that you maybe have heard me say from my friend Casey. The fact that God is sovereign means that he is in absolute control of absolutely everything. In verse 24, the ESV records that the believers began their prayer by saying, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Now this is a, a translation of a Greek word, despotes, which is a rare word to use with reference to God. In fact, it's only used a few times. It's used in Luke 2.29, it's used here, and it's used over in Revelation in reference to God. The word itself points to a person who possesses supreme authority, one who has the highest degree of power and the highest degree of control, one who is absolutely sovereign over something. In fact, in this day, it was common to use it in reference to a slaveholder over his slaves, a despot, right? Despotes, that's where that comes from. So how fitting then that it would be this word that means an absolute control would be applied to God. The one who, look in verse 24, how do they refer to this sovereign Lord? The one who created everything. The one who is the absolute creator of absolutely everything. The one who spoke the universe into existence. They referred to him as the creator of all things. Notice they referred to him In verse 25, as the one who has spoken to his people. They appeal to the written word as authoritative, as truth. What we do every Sunday here, this is God's truth. And the one whom the believers also note, look at verses 27 and 28. The God who superintends the evils planned against him and his people. Using these things, it says right there in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's faith, isn't it? It's faith to say that, it's faith that simply acknowledges God's sovereignty. Simple faith that celebrates God's absolute control of absolutely everything. It's simple faith that not only trusts his plan and his purpose, but it's simple faith that delights in how even the hard and difficult circumstances work together for his glory and for the good of the church. That's encouraging. It's encouraging to look there. Doesn't always feel encouraging, though, does it? It's hard. I like how the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon talked about God's sovereignty in one of his sermons. He said this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I'll say it again. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Peace I realize that many of you are like my friend Casey was, and I know he still is, and I'm still there too. It's a wrestling match. We wrestle with the concept of God's sovereignty. We do. I understand how troubling it can be to try and, and swim in the tumultuous waters of all the philosophy and the understanding and discussions about God's sovereignty. But I also know, through joy and through pain, through trials, through all these things, I also know the sweet comfort of resting my head on the pillow of Scripture's plain teaching. What we see clearly presented in this text and throughout all of the Bible, that nothing happens outside the sovereign control of God. God is God. I hope you see that these early Christians who were walking the well-worn path of devotion to God were quick to turn there, to turn to God's sovereignty when faced with opposition to the gospel. They knew, as we sang earlier, in that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, think about what we sang. I or they could never keep their own hold through life's fearful path. These believers, I know, I hope you know, that God would not let their souls be lost. They knew that his promises would most surely last. And they knew that because he is sovereign, he would indeed hold them fast. Did Jesus not promise us that nothing can snatch you out of my father's hand? Safe and secure, leaning on the everlasting arms of God. They turned to God's sovereignty. And I believe that such a belief, such a conviction, such a life centered on God's sovereignty led them to make an astounding request from God. A request that you can see in verses 29 and 30. Let's look there again together. They've praised God. They've told God who he is. They've leaned on his promises. And now in verse 29, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here we see them asking God, For gospel audacity. That's our third and final point this morning. Audacity. The dictionary. Never knew how many of them there were online, by the way. But the dictionary definition that I could pull together defines audacity as this. Boldness or daring, especially with confident or arrogant disregard for personal safety conventional thought, or other restrictions. Made me like the word even more. I mean, understandably, we often see audacity in a negative light, don't we? We don't think of it as a positive word, but it doesn't have to be that way. Audacity is boldness. It's boldness. It's a confident disregard for personal safety. Sure, It's a confident disregard for conventional thoughts, status quo. It's a confident disregard for other restrictions. And while it may appear arrogant to others, right? Have you ever been called audacious and what they meant to call you was arrogant? It may appear. As arrogant to others, especially those who are holding to the status quo, maybe that which goes against God's word, just because it may look like that doesn't mean it is. It doesn't mean it has to flow from arrogance. That's a problem of pride. That's a heart problem. But I believe these early believers, they were so convinced of the vanity of these religious leaders and they were so convinced of God's sovereignty that they asked God for gospel audacity to be bold. Bold that would lead them to speak the word, to stand against unbiblical demands, to identify with Christ and to live for him and to triumph in victory with him and for him, no matter what the cost. That's audacity. That's gospel boldness. To reinforce this, I want you to think about something for a minute. For what are they not praying? For what are they not praying They're not praying for a change in their circumstances, are they? They're not praying for an end to the opposition, are they? They're not praying for a a plan to subvert or circumvent those who stand against them, are they? That's not what they're praying for. They're simply not. They're praying for the ability to speak God's word with all boldness. To stand on the rock, to build their house on a firm foundation, boldness to preach and proclaim and to live and to share the gospel in their lives with others. They're asking for this in full belief that God will continue. They say it themselves you're going to continue to work you're going to stretch out your hand against them and you're going to perform, not us, you're going to do mighty wonders and signs in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the audacity they are seeking is at one and the same time, both confident and dependent. Confident in God's rule and reign and dependent upon God to grant them the strength, spiritual strength and power that they need to stand for him. That's where our audacity gets it wrong. We might be confident, but sometimes we lack dependence. They're showing both. I think it's very convicting. I think it is very convicting. When you survey the world around you, when you think about the suffering and the persecution and the opposition against the church, not only in other nations, but even in our own, when we see this, how do we pray? How do you pray? Have you bought into the easy escapism? Do you just pray for an escape? Do we pray for all of it to just come to an end? Do we pray for strategies to subvert or circumvent those who stand in opposition? I and mean, I'm not saying that all such prayers are bad. It's good to pray for peace. It's good to pray for an end to suffering. It's good. They're not always bad. There's time for such prayer. My question is are those the only prayers that we're praying? Is that all? Or are we like the early church? Are we bathing our prayer with earnest pleas for gospel audacity? Are we asking God to give us gospel boldness that is confident in him and dependent upon him? Do you long, do I long for the very walls of our earthly dwellings to be shaken so that we can be shaken out of our comfort? Are we longing to be filled with God's spirit to overflowing so that his grace might flow from us to others as we do share our lives in the gospel with others, as we serve them for the sake of Christ? Do you want to be bold for Jesus? Have you asked? Have you asked for gospel boldness? The 18th century evangelist John Wesley once said this. He said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. As a pastor, as your pastor, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I long for this. I long for it. I I long for myself. I long for you, for all of us. I long for this to be true. I long for our church to be those who will look and see all that is happening in the world, who see the powers of this age and the spiritual forces of evil gathering for battle against the church and just call it what it is, vanity, vanity. It's vanity. I long for our church to be those who not only call it vanity, but truly believe that it's vanity because we have found peace by resting our very lives on the comforting truth of God's absolute sovereignty. And I long for our church to be those who, when faced with adversity or persecution or whatever evil comes our way, I long for us to be those who never hesitate to cry out to God together and say, God, give us boldness. Give us gospel audacity. I want us to seek him for divine power so that we can stand up for Jesus, not retreat, not run away to stand up for Jesus, to be faithful to how he's calling us. That's what I long for. As a fellow believer of yours, as a brother in Christ, as your pastor, as a friend, that's what I long for. So I'm gonna ask again, how's your path? How is your path? It's a fitting question to revisit as we bring things to a close. So let me ask as well, are you walking with Jesus? Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you fully devoted to all that God is for you in Jesus? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this truth. Something that I didn't know what he was gonna say, but he's already reminded us of it this morning. So thank you, Charlie. We are the body of Christ. Together, we are the body of Christ. So I want you to keep this in mind. Your path, my path, is our path. It's our path together. That's why it's so beautiful to hear that they loved one another enough to see grass growing on the path and say, brother, the grass grows on your path. Sister, the grass grows on your path. Let's go pray together. I long for this, for our church. I ask God to give us such boldness, and I trust that he will give it to us according to his will, for his glory, and for our good. Amen and amen.